We would like to send out a special thanks to the fun, binge-worthy puzzle game Best Fiends for supporting our podcast. Download Best Fiends for free from the App Store or Google Play. Plus, earn even more with $5 worth of in-game rewards when you reach level 5. That's friends without the R, Best Fiends. Enjoy the show. February 27th, 1995. Springfield, Missouri. The bodies of 35-year-old Cheryl Feeney and her two children, 6-year-old Tyler and 19-month-old Jennifer, are all discovered inside their separate bedrooms at the residence. Cheryl and Tyler have been bludgeoned to death while Jennifer was strangled and the house is completely ransacked. Even though the family's 35-year-old patriarch John Feeney was at a conference 90 miles away, investigators suspect that he drove back home to commit the murders and fabricate an alibi for himself. One year later, John is charged with the crime, but since no conclusive evidence links him to the scene, he winds up being acquitted at trial, so the actual truth about who was responsible for the Feeney family murders remain unknown. After that, the trail went cold. everyone and welcome to our latest episode of The Trail Went Cold. I'm your host Robin Warder and on today's episode we're going to be covering a case involving the murders of a mother and her two children, the 1995 murders of the Feeney family. I've had this one on my list of case suggestions for nearly three years as it was originally sent to me by a listener named Rachel but I've only recently got around to digging into it and I find it surprising that the case is not more well known. After Cheryl Feeney and her two children were all found brutally murdered inside their home, suspicion turned towards the family's patriarch, John Feeney, who also happened to be a local high school science teacher. The problem is that John was attending a conference 90 miles away when the crime took place, but investigators came to believe that he left his hotel in the middle of the night, drove back home to murder his family, and then drove back to the hotel before anyone noticed he was missing. As a result, John was eventually charged with the three murders, but even though there were a number of issues with his character, there was no direct evidence linking him to the crime scene, so his trial wound up ending in a not guilty verdict. Due to double jeopardy, John cannot be charged with this crime again, so the investigation pretty much ground to a dead halt, and it does not sound like there has been much effort to explore other potential leads. Since this crime took place in the mid-1990s, it was referred to as Springfield's version of the O.J. Simpson trial, but it almost seems to have completely faded from memory since John Feeney's acquittal. While there were definitely good reasons to be suspicious of John, there were also certain pieces of evidence which seemed to lean away from him, so regardless of John's guilt or innocence, you cannot deny that there was plenty of reasonable doubt. Overall, it's a pretty horrific and perplexing crime, so on this episode, we're going to explore both sides. Did John Feeney get away with murder, or did the jury get it right? Or could the truth actually lie somewhere in the middle? Anyway, before we get started, just a quick reminder that The Trail Went Cold is a weekly podcast, which is currently available for download on several platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. So if you like this podcast, be sure to subscribe to it, and please leave us a rating or review on any of those sites to help spread the word. The Trail Went Cold is on Patreon, so if you would like to learn how to support the show, please visit our page at patreon.com slash thetrailwentcold. For as little as $1 a month, you can garner access to exclusive rewards, which may include stickers and thank you cards, early access to episodes, and bonus content. So with all that out of the way, let us now delve in to the Feeney Family Murders. Our story begins in Springfield, Missouri in 1995, and our central figures are the Feeney family, who live at a house on West Nottingham Street in the Southland Village subdivision. The family's patriarch, 35-year-old John Feeney, has been married to his 35-year-old wife Cheryl Feeney for 13 years, and the couple have two children. 
a six-year-old son named Tyler, and a 19-month-old daughter named Jennifer. John has spent the past nine years working as a chemistry teacher at Glendale High School, while Cheryl works as a surgical team leader for gynecological surgeries at Cox Medical Center South. On the afternoon of Saturday, February the 25th, John left his residence to drive to the Lake of the Ozarks region in order to attend Interface 95, a conference being held for math and science instructors. The conference was scheduled to begin on Sunday, February the 26th at the Tantara Resort in Osage Beach and last for a couple of days. John presided over a conference session on the afternoon of the 26th and woke up early on the morning of Monday, February 27th in order to deliver his own presentation. After the presentation concluded, John returned to his hotel room shortly after 9.30 a.m. and discovered that he had a message from Glendale High School. A babysitter was scheduled to watch over Jennifer that morning while Cheryl went to work her shift at Cox Medical Center, but since she was unable to get a hold of Cheryl, the babysitter had contacted the high school in an attempt to reach John. The previous day, John had made two attempts to phone Cheryl at home, but there was no answer, so he left a pair of messages on their machine. John tried phoning his residence again and still only got the machine, so he called his own parents and Cheryl's parents, who both said they hadn't heard from her. Now, there are differing accounts about what actually happened next. The earliest media coverage of this case states that John contacted the Greene County Sheriff's Office and asked them to go to his house to check on his family, and he also called his mother, Ola Jean Feeney, and got her to meet them there since she had a key to unlock the front door and let them inside. However, a later version is that a co-worker of Cheryl's named Teresa Ballinger became concerned when Cheryl failed to show up for her shift without calling, so she took the initiative to visit the Feeney residence to check on her. When Ballinger arrived, she discovered that the front door was unlocked and walked inside, only to discover that the house had been ransacked. Ballinger became concerned enough that she called 911, so George Perigo, a deputy with the Greene County Sheriff's Office, was sent to the residence, and that's when the bodies were discovered. I really have no idea why there's such contradictory information about who found the bodies, but since Ballinger and Perego would both share this story when they testified at John Feeney's trial over one year later, I have to assume that their version is the correct one. Whatever the case, Cheryl, Tyler, and Jennifer Feeney were all discovered murdered inside their respective bedrooms at the residence. Cheryl had been bludgeoned to death with a blunt instrument and was lying face down on her waterbed. She had been struck ten times and had four bruises on her arms to indicate defensive wounds, and there were also two superficial puncture wounds, possibly made by a knife, on her left cheek. The words die and bitch had been splattered on the bedroom wall in beige paint. Tyler was also bludgeoned to death after being struck seven times, and he was found on his bed with a pillow over his face. It was believed that both Tyler and his mother were struck with a metal pipe, but the actual murder weapon was never found. Jennifer's body was found inside her crib, and she had been strangled to death with a ligature, possibly a shoelace or a nylon cord, but once again, the murder weapon was never found. Since Cheryl was wearing a nightgown, and both children had their pajamas on, it seemed likely they were murdered in the middle of the night while they slept. The thermostat on Cheryl's waterbed had been cranked up to its highest level, so her body had started to decompose from the heat. This made it difficult to pin down an exact time of death, but it seemed likely the family had been murdered during the late evening hours of February the 25th, or the early morning hours of February the 26th. Hours after the discovery of the bodies, John Feeney was informed about his family's murders over the phone by his father, Clarence Feeney, and he would quickly leave Osage Beach to return home to Springfield. The crime would be investigated by the South Central Missouri Major Case Squad, which was made up of officers from a number of different law enforcement agencies in the area, but they immediately suspected that there was something off about the murder scene. The entire Feeney residence had been ransacked, as numerous drawers were pulled out before the contents were dumped onto the floor. On the surface, the motive appeared to be robbery, as John Feeney would later report that around 300 items had been stolen from the residence, including jewelry and electronics. However, a decent amount of cash was left behind at the residence, and there were a number of odd details, such as all the family photos in the home being turned around to face the wall. The back door appeared to have been pried open, but upon closer inspection, it was apparent that the screws on the strike plate where the latch connected had been deliberately unscrewed rather than pulled out, which could only have been done if the door was already open. 
And even though pry marks were found around the lock on the doorknob, there were none around the deadbolt lock on the door. To make things even stranger, some of the items which had supposedly been stolen from the house were found in the trunk of Cheryl's car, which was parked inside the garage. A battery charger was attached to the vehicle, which initially gave off the impression that the perpetrator was planning to steal the car in order to transport the items, but the problem is that the battery was not actually dead. It was now apparent that the burglary had been staged in order to cover up the real motive for these murders. When John Feeney returned to Springfield, his Ford Mustang was immediately impounded by police, but would later be returned to him after no evidence was found in the vehicle to link him to the crime. John would be interviewed three times by the South Central Missouri Major Case Squad and agreed to submit hair and blood samples for testing, as well as turn over numerous personal and financial records. However, John turned down the request to take a polygraph test at the advice of his defense attorney, Sean Askinosi, who was hired to represent John right after his family's funeral. John also wrote out a seven-page statement providing a detailed account of his movements on the weekend his family was murdered, and investigators would also send questionnaires to the 1,800 educators who attended the Interface 95 conference in Osage Beach, which would help them piece together a timeline to corroborate John's whereabouts. However, investigators did tell the media that they were unable to eliminate John as a suspect, and he surprised a number of people when he decided to move back into the same house where his family's murders took place. John was placed on paid administrative leave from his teaching job at Glendale High School in order to recover from the trauma, but just over two months after the crime took place, the Springfield News Leader started publishing some less-than-flattering allegations against John which were provided to them by law enforcement. It was reported that John had allegedly supplied alcohol to his underage students, many of them female, and drank with them on numerous occasions, including at a downtown bar and on a school-sponsored field trip to Bermuda. In addition, John was supposedly a fan of the role-playing tabletop game Vampire the Masquerade and liked to play it with his students, even though the game involved assuming the role of vampires to kill people. In response, John decided to file a lawsuit against the South Central Missouri Major Case Squad in May of 1995 and sought a gag order against them because he believed that the information they had leaked was ruining his reputation. Even though a hearing about the matter was scheduled in court, John elected to drop the lawsuit only a few days after he filed it, as documents show that the defendants were planning to challenge John to take the witness stand during the hearing, and they were also planning to call upon additional witnesses who were going to share some unflattering stories about John's character. In July, John announced that he was resigning from his teaching job at Glendale High, stating that the loss of his family would have made it too difficult for him to continue on. During his initial questioning by investigators, John denied that he or Cheryl had ever conducted any extramarital affairs, but they would eventually discover that John had cheated on his wife with no less than four different women. Three of these women were fellow educators who became involved with John in 1990 and 1991, but the fourth woman was a science teacher from Mansfield named Pam Probert. Their affair had begun while they were both attending a teacher's conference in 1994, and they would continue to sleep together whenever they met up at these conferences throughout the year. In fact, when John first arrived in Osage Beach for Interface 95, he went out to dinner with Pam on the evening of February the 25th. Another red flag was when investigators learned that John stood to collect around $400,000 from various insurance policies he had taken out on his family. In fact, John had purchased policies for both himself and Cheryl for $250,000 in September of 1994, only four months before her death. If that wasn't enough, John also received an insurance payout from the 300 items which were supposedly stolen from his home during the murders, as the insurance investigator assigned to this claim believed it was legitimate and determined that John was not at fault for his family's deaths. Regardless, investigators still considered John to be the prime suspect and would take the case to a Greene County grand jury at the end of 1995. John did agree to provide hair and handwriting samples for the grand jury investigation, but when he was subpoenaed to testify at the hearings, he invoked his Fifth Amendment rights and declined to answer any questions to avoid self-incrimination. Well, on April the 22nd, 1996, after a 14-month investigation, the grand jury indicted John on three counts of first-degree murder. 
The case would go to trial in Greene County Circuit Court in September of that year, and if John was found guilty of the crime, he would potentially be facing the death penalty. John's defense team was headed by Sean Askinosi, and the case would be tried by assistant Greene County prosecuting attorney Daryl Moore. The motive presented by the prosecution is that in addition to monetary gain from his family's life insurance policies, John wanted to free himself from the responsibilities of marriage and fatherhood by murdering Cheryl, Tyler, and Jennifer. They believe that after arriving in Osage Beach on February the 25th to establish an alibi for himself, John drove back to Springfield to kill his family during the early morning hours of February the 26th and then returned to Osage Beach to attend his conference later that day. So here was the established timeline of John's whereabouts. After he arrived in Osage Beach on February the 25th, John met up with Pam Probert and they went out to dinner. After they left the restaurant together in John's Ford Mustang in order to drive back to the Tantara Resort, John was pulled over by an officer from the Osage Beach Police Department for speeding as he was driving 52 miles per hour in a 35 mile per hour zone. The traffic stop took place at 8.33 p.m. and was videotaped by the dash cam in the officer's patrol car. The officer issued a speeding ticket and informed John that since he lived over 50 miles away, he would have to hold on to John's driver's license to ensure that he wouldn't skip town without paying the ticket. According to Pam, John then drove them back to the resort where they were supposed to attend a party, but John told her that he had a headache and wanted to return to his room, so they went their separate ways. At 9.15, John said that he called Cheryl from his room and spoke with her, and phone records would confirm that the conversation lasted for about five minutes. At around 10.30, John went to the Osage Beach Police Department in order to pay off his speeding ticket and pick up his driver's license, and claimed that he then returned to his hotel room and spent the rest of the night sleeping. During his original statement to investigators, John claimed that he did not leave his room again until 11 a.m. on February the 26th, but a search of his belongings turned up a time-stamped receipt which showed a purchase from a McDonald's in Osage Beach at 6.59 a.m., and when shown this, John changed his story and confirmed that he did wake up early and went to buy breakfast there at that time. So this pretty much established that if John drove from Osage Beach to Springfield and back in order to murder his family, the crime would have had to have taken place between when he left the police station at 10.30 p.m. on the 25th and purchased the breakfast at McDonald's at 6.59 a.m. on the 26th. The 90-mile route would have taken approximately 1 hour and 35 minutes to drive each way, so John definitely had enough time to pull this off. However, before John's trial began, the prosecution's case would suffer a major setback when an important witness from the grand jury proceedings was discredited. Ron Gann, a convenience store clerk from a Springfield gas station, had testified that he saw John stop at the station to purchase fuel at around 1.30 a.m. on February the 26th, and Gann even provided a description of his red Ford Mustang. But John's defense team would eventually dig up timesheets to show that Gann did not actually clock in for work there until 6 a.m. that morning. Since the McDonald's receipt placed John in Osage Beach at 6.59, it would have been impossible for him to be in Springfield at 6 o'clock. So it was apparent that Gann was mistaken about having seen John, and he could no longer testify as a witness for the prosecution. The problem is that Gann was the only eyewitness who could place John in Springfield during that time period, and no conclusive physical evidence linked him to the murder scene. The state's case against John was very circumstantial, and the trial would feature conflicting testimony about him from a number of character witnesses. While some of them testified that John was a very devoted husband, father, and teacher who often spoke glowingly of his family, others stated that he often complained about them and gave off the impression that he never really wanted children to begin with. In addition to the allegations of John providing alcohol for his underage students, there was also testimony about him displaying inappropriate behavior with them, including one former female student who claimed that John had once asked her if she was naked during a phone conversation. Believe it or not, John's interest in the role-playing game Vampire the Masquerade was actually brought up at the trial as the prosecution inferred that John may have wanted to take this fantasy and assume the role of a real-life murderer. However, a longtime friend of John's testified that he had engaged in role-playing games with John for over a decade but never saw him play Vampire the Masquerade 
or give off the impression of having murderous fantasies, as John mostly liked to assume the role of a quote-unquote lawful good elf. Testimony was also provided by the four women whom John had conducted extramarital affairs with, but the prosecution was taken by surprise when Pam Probert stated that they had broken off the affair in late 1994. Since John and Pam had dinner together in Osage Beach on the evening of February the 25th, the prosecution was under the impression that they were planning to spend the night together until John told her he had a headache, but Pam testified that she had no expectation of sex at that point. All four of the women said that John always spoke fondly of his family and had never openly expressed any desire to end his marriage with Cheryl. There was also controversy about the $250,000 life insurance policy John had taken out on Cheryl in September of 1994. Some handwriting experts testified that the signature on the policy did not match Cheryl and may have been forged, though they cannot say with any certainty that John was the person who forged it. But there was an additional complication, because this policy had an application form attached with Cheryl's medical history, and these same experts testified that they believed the handwriting on this form did match Cheryl. There was one witness who claimed that they heard noises from inside John's room at the Tentara Resort during the early morning hours of February the 26th, which if true, could have poked a hole in the scenario that John had traveled to Springfield during that time period to kill his family. A neighbor from the Southland Village subdivision also testified that at around 1.30pm on the afternoon of the 26th, they passed by the Feeney residence and noticed that the garage door was open about 12 to 14 inches. This same neighbor then passed the house again at around 5 o'clock that afternoon and noticed that the garage door was now fully closed and it was still closed when police arrived at the residence the following morning. If the neighbor's testimony was accurate, then this implied that the person responsible for murdering Cheryl, Tyler, and Jennifer was still inside the residence on the afternoon of February the 26th. Since John had played golf with two friends in Osage Beach that morning, and witnesses verified his whereabouts at the conference for the remainder of the day, there's no way John could have been at his house in Springfield that afternoon to close the garage door. In addition, the two friends who went golfing with John and a number of people who interacted with him at the conference on the 26th testified that they didn't notice anything unusual about him to suggest that he had returned from an all-night road trip to kill his wife and children. John's defense team expressed criticism about how the murder scene was handled, as the police never attempted to take fingerprints from Jennifer's crib, or the headboard of Tyler's bed, or the keys to Cheryl's car. They also neglected to check for blood in the house's drains, to see if anyone had attempted to clean themselves off after committing the murders. The prosecution attempted to link some red fibers which had been found on a comforter in the master bedroom and a leather work glove inside the garage to some similar fibers from the floor mats of John's Mustang, but a definitive match could not be made. A semen stain was found on this same comforter which matched John, but since he always slept in that bed anyway, it may not have meant anything. The issue is that there was no physical evidence which proved that John was responsible for the crime, and there were a few pieces of evidence which seemed to point away from him. As you recall, some words had been written on the bedroom wall in beige paint, and there were shoe prints which had tracked this paint throughout the house. The shoe prints were a size 11, and John's foot size was 12, though since the prints went the full length of the house, investigators believed that they might have been intentionally staged. An unidentified reddish-brown hair was found on Cheryl's bloodstained nightgown, which did not match John, as well as a pair of gray hairs, which were respectively found on a paintbrush and a piece of cardboard inside the garage. In addition, there were two fingerprints on a light bulb, which had been unscrewed from the garage door opener motor, and they did not match John either. However, the oddest piece of evidence in this case was when Tyler's autopsy revealed that he had hepatitis B. Since sexual transmission is one of the most common ways to contract the virus, investigators seriously looked at the possibility that Tyler had been abused. While the medical examiner concluded that Tyler's rectum was dilated and there was scarring and stretching around his anus, he could not determine with any certainty that the boy was sexually assaulted right before he was murdered. At the beginning of the investigation, John had voluntarily submitted samples of his blood to the authorities, but the results showed that he did not have hepatitis B. 
A list was compiled of 155 people who had a known connection to Tyler and submitted to the Missouri Department of Health to see if any of them had ever tested positive for hepatitis B, but there were no matches. Ultimately, the state failed to come up with a concrete explanation for how Tyler contracted the virus or determine if this detail had any link to the crime. The case against John would go to the jury on October the 6th, but in the end, they felt there was just way too much reasonable doubt for a conviction. After deliberating for only five hours, the jury found John not guilty of all three murders, so he was acquitted and set free. According to the jurors, when deliberations began, the votes were five for conviction, five for acquittal, and two undecided. But as they gradually broke down each detail about the state's case, a unanimous not guilty verdict was reached. When the story was featured on Dateline, some of the jurors were interviewed and asked how many of them believed John was innocent. Not one of them raised their hands, but they all said that the prosecution had not proven their case against him beyond a reasonable doubt. Following the acquittal, the South Central Missouri Major Case Squad announced that the investigation into the Feeney murders would not be reopened, as they still seemed to believe that John was the perpetrator, but were powerless to do anything about it due to double jeopardy. One month later, Cheryl's parents, Don and Lynn Hash, filed a wrongful death lawsuit against Don to prevent him from collecting any of the insurance benefits from his family's death. The Hashes dropped the lawsuit a few days later, after it was announced that it would be moved from state court to federal court, but the two sides continued to have negotiations about how the insurance money would be used, and in August of 1997, they reached a settlement on this matter, though the terms were never disclosed publicly. John continued to live in relative seclusion in the same house where his wife and children's murders took place, and said that he had hired private investigators to search for their killer, but it doesn't look like this ever went anywhere, and John eventually moved to South America to become a missionary. So the actual truth about who was responsible for the murders of Cheryl, Tyler, and Jennifer Feeney remains up for debate. So I guess you could say, the trail went cold. But before we continue, I would like to share a spooky story. It was a night like any other. We ate some dinner, chatted for a bit about school and work. Everything seemed normal, then suddenly, I was gone. So I guess you could say, the trail... Well, I'm not going to say the trail went cold, because they really don't need to worry. You see, I was just off scoring some quality time with Best Fiends. On this show, we spend a lot of time speculating about mysterious disappearances, but if you're having as much fun with Best Fiends as I am, it's no secret why you sometimes feel the need to sneak off to play. Best Fiends is a free-to-download mobile puzzle game with thousands of exciting levels for new adventures and challenges every time you play. Since new events and challenges pop up all year round, you're always going to have the chance to earn exclusive in-game items, characters, and rewards. I've been playing Best Fiends for around two and a half years now, and sneaking off to play it at any opportunity in order to de-stress during podcast work has certainly paid off for me since I recently passed the milestone of level 3500. It's been quite an experience in getting this far, and I wouldn't keep talking about it if I didn't continue playing. So download Best Fiends for free from the App Store or Google Play. Plus, earn even more with $5 worth of in-game rewards when you reach level 5. That's friends without the R, Best Fiends. Thank you, and enjoy the rest of this episode. So like I mentioned in the intro, this case was originally requested to me by a listener, and given that we're talking about a horrific murder where a father was charged with killing his wife and children, I'm surprised this case isn't more well known. The trial apparently got a lot of coverage on Court TV back in 1996, and was referred to as Springfield's version of the O.J. Simpson trial, which had taken place one year earlier. Yet if you do a Google search about this case, you're not going to find anything more than a handful of articles 
so most of my research had to be done at newspapers.com by combing through their archives of the Springfield News Leader. When I'm going through newspaper archives, I always like to research the cases in chronological order because it's quite fascinating to see how these events unfold in real time. Right after the murders occurred, so many of John Feeney's friends, acquaintances, and students were willing to go on the record to state what a good guy and devoted family man he was, but as time went on, some not-so-flattering things would emerge about him. For some reason, Springfield, Missouri seemed to be rife with bizarre crimes during the 1990s. Obviously, the most famous case from the city is the disappearance of Cheryl Levitt, Susie Streeter, and Stacy McCall, a.k.a. the Springfield Three, who all went missing in June of 1992. Much like the Feeney case, the community wondered how something horrible could happen to three victims in the middle of the night inside a suburban home in a seemingly safe neighborhood without anyone seeing or hearing anything. One month after the Feeney murders, Stacy McCall's mother, Janice McCall, actually attended a vigil for the family in which she offered her sympathy to their loved ones. And in February of 2000, on the five-year anniversary of the murders, Cheryl, Tyler, and Jennifer were honored with a memorial bench in Phelps Grove Park, which also contained a memorial bench for Cheryl, Susie, and Stacy. And if you're looking for another odd parallel between the two cases, Cheryl's place of employment was Cox Medical Center South, where there have always been unsubstantiated rumors about the three missing women being buried underneath the parking garage. I have to tell you that researching the Feeney case made my head spin a few times, as it's really difficult to get a full grasp on what actually happened here, and I know that I changed my mind about certain things on multiple occasions. Well, one opinion I do feel pretty certain about is that regardless of whether John Feeney was actually guilty or innocent of this crime, the jury made the correct call by acquitting him. Given the heinous nature of this crime, the evidence against Feeney was astonishingly weak, as it seems like the state's case was focused more on painting him as a bad husband and a bad father with numerous character flaws, rather than proving that he actually committed these murders. I once covered another case on the trail went cold about a man who was put on trial and acquitted for killing his wife and two children, and that was the Mathis family murders, which took place in South Dakota in September of 1981. But the key difference is that the accused, John Mathis, was present at the scene when his family's murders took place and claimed that he was attacked and wounded by an unknown third party. John Feeney was established as being 90 miles away around the approximate time period his family was killed, and no matter how hard they tried, the prosecution was unable to provide any conclusive evidence which showed that John could have made the lengthy drive back home to commit this crime. They put way too much stock into the eyewitness account of Ron Gann, the clerk who claimed he saw John buying gas in Springfield that night, and I cannot believe that no one from law enforcement or the prosecuting attorney's office actually went to the trouble of verifying Gann's timesheets to ensure that he was actually working at that time. They received a lot of criticism in the local media for the sloppiness of the investigation, and since Gann was discredited as a witness before the trial even started, the state was already facing a major uphill battle. This crime, which involved the murders of a 6-year-old boy and a 19-month-old toddler, was so heinous that it could easily see emotions overcoming logic. So it speaks volumes about how weak this case was that the jury only deliberated for 5 hours before they found John Feeney not guilty, even though by their own admission, they were not necessarily convinced he was innocent. It probably also didn't help that Feeney could have received the death penalty if he was found guilty, as this may have affected the jury's mindset. If you're voting to potentially send a man to his death, you have to feel 100% certain you've got the right person, and that certainly wasn't the case here. I think the biggest sign that the prosecution was grasping at straws was when they discussed John's interest in the role-playing game Vampire the Masquerade, and inferred that it was compelling him to live out a fantasy to be a murderer. That sounds like pure 1990s satanic panic nonsense, and during the trial, the Springfield News leader even published an article featuring interviews with some Vampire the Masquerade fans, who said the game was completely harmless and criticized the authorities for attempting to make their hobby a scapegoat for an horrific triple murder. Now, John's defense attorney, Sean Askinosi, is certainly an interesting character, as prior to becoming a lawyer, 
He had briefly been the manager for musician Sheryl Crow before she became famous, and he also had a short run in Japan as a professional wrestler named Shooting Sean Springfield, which makes him a pretty cool dude in my eyes. After being a criminal defense attorney for nearly 20 years, Askinosi finally got to the point where he was suffering panic attacks and realized he just couldn't do it anymore, so he started his own chocolate manufacturer, Askinosi Chocolate, which has been a successful company since 2007. From what I've read, Askinosi was very passionate about this case because he genuinely believed that John was innocent. John's defense team also contained another attorney you might recognize if you're an Unsolved Mysteries fan, and that's D. Wampler, who represented Johnny Lee Wilson when he spent nine years in prison for a murder he did not commit until he received a pardon from Missouri Governor Mel Carnahan. The narrative for this case seems to be that the South Central Missouri Major K-Squad did not initially consider John to be a suspect in the murders of his own family, but once he hired Sean Askinosi to represent him, John pretty much became the only suspect, and from that moment on, they did not make much effort to explore other potential leads. Even though John was cooperative overall, I don't think investigators were particularly pleased that Askinosi advised him to turn down the request to take a polygraph, but any good defense attorney is going to do that. Now, don't get me wrong, there were definitely good reasons to be suspicious of John, but it's troubling that there are some pieces of physical evidence from the murder scene which did not match him. This opens up a third possibility that John may not have actually been present when the crime took place, but had someone else kill his family on his behalf, but we'll talk more about that angle as we go along. I should mention that if you research this case online, you'll find a blog posting about it at a website called Prophecy Podcast, which contains a number of interesting comments from people who claim they were living in Springfield back in 1995, and most of them do not have flattering things to say about John Feeney. In fact, some of these commenters claim they were former students of Feeney's and described him as a very odd person, and they seem to corroborate the rumors that circulated about him acting inappropriately around teenage girls and doing things like supplying alcohol to his underage students. One odd story about John which was printed in the newspapers at that time was that he often told his students about his obsession with supermodel Cindy Crawford and even went so far as to put up a poster of her in his classroom. I mean, having an obsession with Cindy Crawford obviously wasn't unusual given what a big name she was during the 1990s, but I think many schools would frown over the idea of a teacher putting up her poster in his class. I'll talk more about the comments from this blog later on, but I think it raised a few eyebrows when the story about Feeney supplying alcohol to his students was leaked out to the papers and he responded by suing the South Central Missouri Major K-Squad. This was only three months after the murders took place, and I think many people found it odd that a grieving father who lost his wife and children would be more concerned about protecting his reputation rather than finding the perpetrator. Now, if John truly was innocent, then I can understand why he'd be angry about this, because the story about the alcohol wouldn't have had any relevance to the investigation. But it is interesting how quickly he dropped the lawsuit once it became apparent that he would have to testify under oath if things proceeded any further, and other witnesses would probably be called upon to share some less than flattering stories about him. No one really knew this at the time, but I think John was paranoid that all the stories about his extramarital affairs were going to come out, which is ultimately what happened when he went on trial. Yes, the whole infidelity thing did not paint John in a very good light, but even if he was a bad husband, does that necessarily mean he was a murderer? While infidelity can make someone look like a promising suspect, you need other corroborating evidence, and it's troubling that John's affairs were presented as one of the primary pieces of evidence against him when he was charged. But on the other hand, it's so tempting to believe that John was the guilty party, because who else would have had a motive for such a brutal crime? Regardless of who the actual perpetrator was, I think everyone can agree that all the ransacking and theft that took place at the Feeney residence was staged in order to make it look like Cheryl, Tyler, and Jennifer were killed in some sort of burglary gone wrong. It's pretty obvious that whoever went into that house did so with the primary intention of murdering that family. And obviously, the most senseless aspect of this crime is that they chose to kill a 19-month-old toddler in her crib 
who would not have been able to talk or act as a witness against them. Not only that, but instead of bludgeoning Jennifer like they did with her mother and brother, they chose to fatally strangle her, and I can honestly say that her death is one of the most disturbing things I've ever discussed on this podcast. You see, instead of wrapping the ligature around Jennifer's neck, they wrapped it around her open mouth and jaw in order to obstruct the jugular veins and cut off the flow of blood to her brain, meaning that her death likely lasted several minutes. I mean, I just cannot comprehend the rage which would have driven someone to do this, but when you hear the rumors that John never even wanted this child to begin with, you have to wonder if he would have been capable of such a heinous act. What kind of random burglar would want to do this to a toddler? The way this crime was staged does give off the impression that the perpetrator was familiar with the layout of the house. They tried to make it look like the back door had been pried open, but it was apparent that the latch had been carefully unscrewed. We have the weird detail of a bunch of items being found in the trunk of Cheryl's car, which was connected to a battery charger, even though the battery was not actually dead. This was seemingly done to make it look like someone made a failed attempt to steal the car, but if so, what would they have used as transportation to arrive at the residence to begin with? John actually managed to get an insurance payout by claiming that 300 other items were stolen from the residence, but surely that would require another vehicle in order to transport them. The only way this burglary scenario would make any sense is if there were two perpetrators who were planning to flee the scene in two separate vehicles containing the stolen items, but there are just too many odd details to believe this crime was a burglary, such as all the family photos being turned to face the wall. I certainly wouldn't say this is evidence to prove that John is guilty, but turning your wife and children's photos around so you don't have to look at their faces when you kill them does come across as something a family annihilator would do. Since the heat on the waterbed was turned up to its highest level, it's been theorized that this was done to allow Cheryl's body to decompose as quickly as possible in order to destroy potential physical evidence and make it more difficult to determine the exact time of death. I imagine this sort of thing would not even cross your average criminal's mind, but I could see a chemistry teacher like John possibly thinking about that stuff. It's never been reported whether or not Cheryl was sexually assaulted, and it's unclear if the decomposition made that impossible to determine. I know that a semen stain which matched John was found on the waterbed's comforter, which may not have had any significance since he slept in that bed, but it's been reported that it was Cheryl's normal routine to do the laundry on Saturdays. So if Cheryl washed the comforter after John left for the conference that afternoon, then that semen stain would be a lot harder to explain. One piece of physical evidence which supposedly leads away from John are the footprints that track paint throughout the house as they were made with size 11 shoes, even though John's foot size was 12. But investigators believe that the prints were lined up so perfectly throughout the entire length of the house that they had to be staged. Theoretically, if John wanted to throw everyone off, he could have obtained a pair of size 11 shoes, dipped them in paint, and then slipped them over his feet or even his hands in order to fabricate a trail of footprints. It's entirely possible that the only reason that words like die and bitch were written on the bedroom wall in beige paint was to provide a reason for this paint to even be at the house to begin with, so that these tracks could be made. John was a pretty smart man with a better than average IQ, so he may have been capable of dreaming up a plan to fabricate physical evidence which seemed to point away from him. But we also have to acknowledge that there was hair and fingerprint evidence at the murder scene which did not match John, and that's a lot harder to fake. This includes a hair found on Cheryl's bloodstained nightgown, hairs found on a paintbrush and a piece of cardboard in the garage, and unidentified fingerprints on the garage door opener motor's light bulb, which had been unscrewed. Yes, if you live in a house which is frequented by visitors, it's only natural that you're going to find unidentified hairs and fingerprints which don't belong to anyone in the family, but when you're talking about a bloodstained nightgown and an unscrewed light bulb, I'm not sure there's an innocent explanation for them being there. And since the hair from the nightgown was reddish-brown, and the hairs from the garage were grey, could this point to more than one perpetrator being involved? However, this physical evidence might not exonerate John, since he could have arranged for someone else to murder his family while he was 90 miles away. But let's look at the timeline of events. 
I previously made mention of a blog posting on the Prophecy Podcast website, which contains numerous comments from posters who claim to be John's former students. One of them wrote that during his last class before the murders took place, John told the students that he would be attending the Interface 95 conference, but he also went into specific details about the resort he would be staying at and how far it was from Springfield. You could interpret this as him planting the seeds to establish an alibi for himself in order for everyone to remember he was out of town when his family was killed. A couple of commenters on this blog have claimed that John told people his family would be joining him in Osage Beach for a vacation, and that would make sense, since Cheryl originally hailed from the town of Camdenton, which is also in the Lake of the Ozarks region, and her parents live there. However, I've never seen this corroborated by any official source, and since Cheryl was scheduled to work a shift at the Cox Medical Center on Monday morning, I see no indication that she was planning to join John on this trip. We do know that John was confirmed to be in Osage Beach when he stopped by the police station to pay off his speeding ticket at 10.30pm on February the 25th, and we have a time-stamped receipt showing that John purchased breakfast at McDonald's there at 6.59am on February the 26th. John's whereabouts are pretty much accounted for throughout that entire day, and we know that he couldn't have driven back to Springfield and murdered his family during the early morning hours of the 27th because Cheryl's body likely wouldn't have had such a high level of decomposition when she was found later that day. So if John was guilty, the crime had to take place during that 9.5 hour window between the 25th and 26th, and since the drive from Osage Beach to Springfield would take around 90 to 95 minutes, that's certainly feasible. Now, three of the extramarital affairs John had took place in 1990 and 1991, so they may not be relevant to this case, but his affair with Pam Probert was a lot more important because they started sleeping together in 1994 and would meet up whenever they attended teachers' conferences, just like Interface 95. Since they went out for dinner in Osage Beach on the evening of February the 25th, I think the prosecution considered Pam to be one of their most important witnesses because if they were originally planning to spend the night together and John bowed out because of a convenient headache, then you could infer that he did this because he was planning to drive back to Springfield. But it took the prosecution by surprise when Pam testified at the trial and said they had agreed to end the affair months earlier and she had no expectation they would have sex that night. So for all we know, John's headache could have been genuine, though he did leave the resort to make a trip to the police station at 10.30 in order to pay off the speeding ticket. On one hand, John had to do this in order to get his driver's license back, but on the other hand, he was going to be in Osage Beach the entire weekend, and he could have gone in to pay the ticket the following day if he wasn't feeling well. If you believe John was guilty, then he may have made the calculated decision to do this before he left on his trip to Springfield, because being seen in a police station makes for a pretty solid alibi. Hell, if John was a diabolical criminal mastermind, perhaps he intentionally drove over the speed limit in hopes of getting pulled over, because this would leave a paper trail placing him in Osage Beach on that particular night. So obviously, Ron Gann's sighting of John purchasing gas in Springfield was discredited, but if John did this, I'd be curious to know if he stopped anywhere else to get fuel. If John filled up his tank when he first arrived at Osage Beach on the evening of February the 25th, then that wouldn't have looked suspicious, and since the round trip from Osage Beach to Springfield and back was around 180 miles total, he probably could have made that trip on only one tank if it was already full. If he had to stop for gas during that trip, I'm sure John would have paid with cash rather than a credit card to avoid leaving a paper trail. I know that investigators checked a number of gas stations on the route between Springfield and Osage Beach to see if there was any evidence that John stopped for fuel on the late evening of the 25th or the early morning of the 26th. There were even some other gas station employees besides Ron Gann who thought they might have recognized John's photo, but whenever their security tapes were checked, it turned up no sign of John or his red Ford Mustang. When John was first questioned by investigators, he said that after he went to bed on the 25th, he did not leave his hotel room until 11 a.m. the following morning, but then he changed his story when they found the time-stamped McDonald's receipt in his belongings. Now, if John was trying to fabricate an alibi, 
You'd think that he would have mentioned the McDonald's trip and produced the receipt voluntarily, so if he was innocent, perhaps he just forgot he went to McDonald's that morning, because I'm sure he had a lot on his mind after learning about the deaths of his family. Everyone who interacted with John in Osage Beach on the 26th stated that they didn't notice anything unusual about him that day, which means he would have to be a pretty convincing sociopath if he was able to maintain that facade after an all-night trip to murder his wife and children. And given the amount of time that trip would have taken, you have to factor that in addition to these lengthy drives and the act of committing the murders, John would have needed ample time to ransack the house and stage the burglary before cleaning himself up and do such a thorough job of disposing of evidence, including the murder weapons, which have still never been found to this day. So if John was tired, he did a remarkably good job at hiding it. John also called his residence on two separate occasions on the 26th and left messages for Cheryl on the answering machine, but of course, he could have done this in order to maintain the facade that he had no idea his family was already dead. There was also an eyewitness who reportedly heard noise inside John's hotel room on the night of the murders, though none of the sources I could find mentioned a specific time. And one of the Feeney's neighbors was certain that they saw their house's garage door open and closed at separate times on the afternoon of the 26th, a time period when John could be conclusively placed in Osage Beach. It's very weird to me that the killer would still be hanging around the Feeney residence several hours after the murders took place, but if that neighbor's account of the open garage door is accurate, then this means that someone else besides John was involved in the crime. But it's also possible that both the neighbor and the eyewitness from the hotel misremembered or misinterpreted things, so their testimony doesn't have much significance. It's also very frustrating that we have contradictory accounts of how exactly the victims were discovered. One version is that John called his mother, Ola Jean, and the Greene County Sheriff's Office to ask them to check the house, and Ola Jean used her key to let the police inside. The other version is that a co-worker of Cheryl's named Teresa Ballinger took the initiative to check the house herself and found it unlocked and called 911 when she discovered it was ransacked. Like I mentioned earlier, the Teresa Ballinger version is the one that was presented at John's trial, so it's probably the correct version, and this confusion may have been caused by some inaccurate reporting during the early stages of the investigation. One of the reasons I'm so hung up on this is that there are many documented cases of murderers intentionally arranging for other people to discover their victims' bodies to make themselves look less guilty, which might explain why John asked his mother and the police to check out his house. And I would really like to know for certain whether the house's front door was locked or unlocked that morning, since the evidence shows that the perpetrator forced themselves in through the back door. So now I'm going to go back to that aforementioned blog post at the Prophecy Podcast website, because the most interesting comment there was left by a poster under the username, Former Detective That Knows. This poster claims that they were one of the original detectives who worked on this case, and that there was a lot of damning evidence pointing to John's guilt, which was not shared publicly or used at his trial. Now, obviously, since this is an anonymous internet commenter, and some of this information has never been verified by an official source, you have to take it with a huge grain of salt, but they share some interesting points. When John returned to the Tantara Resort following dinner with Pam Probert on the evening of February the 25th, he said he returned to his room and phoned Cheryl at 9.15pm, and phone records confirmed they had a five-minute conversation. On this particular week, Jennifer had been feeling ill, so the theory presented by this so-called detective is that John phoned Cheryl to let her know that he felt bad about leaving her alone with a sick child, so he was going to leave the conference to drive back home that night for the rest of the weekend. After the call ended, John went to the Osage Beach Police Station to pay off his speeding ticket in order to fabricate an alibi before he traveled back to Springfield to commit the murders. The commenter claims that Pam Probert attempted to phone John in his hotel room at around midnight but got no answer, so he later told her that he had gone out onto the balcony to smoke a cigarette around that time and didn't hear the phone ring. Again, I haven't seen this detail shared anywhere else, so I have no idea how true it is. But the most interesting detail this commenter shared 
is that a woven belt was supposedly found rolled up on the kitchen counter inside the Feeney residence after the murders. When John was pulled over for speeding in Osage Beach, the incident was captured on a dash cam video in the patrol car, and it apparently showed John wearing a woven belt. Yet he did not have this belt in his possessions when police informed him about what happened to his family. So the implication seems to be that John removed his clothing before he committed the murders in order to not get blood on them, and left his woven belt on the kitchen counter, but forgot to take it with him when he drove back to Osage Beach. Well, if this is true, that belt would have been the only piece of evidence placing John at the murder scene, so I have no idea why it wouldn't have been brought up at his trial, especially when you consider how weak the case was against him. This is one reason I am a bit skeptical about the veracity of this comment from former detective that knows. Now, I want to explore the theory that John was not actually present when the murders took place and hired someone else to kill his family. The issue with that scenario is that John willingly turned over all financial records to his investigators, and it does not sound like they found any red flags which pointed to a murder for hire, such as the withdrawal of a large sum of money. In many cases where people murder their spouses or family members, the motive is that they were suffering from serious financial problems and desperately needed the insurance money, but that wasn't the case here, as the Feenies did not have any major debts and were living a comfortable, middle-class lifestyle within their means. There was a lot of controversy over the fact that John had taken out a $250,000 life insurance policy on Cheryl, and her signature on the policy may have been forged, but it doesn't sound like he desperately needed the money. Generally, when a murder takes place, insurance companies don't like to pay out money to the beneficiary until they've been cleared as a suspect, which never happened for John, though he was eventually found not guilty in a court of law. John eventually reached a settlement with Cheryl's parents in regards to the insurance payout, but it's unclear how much he profited financially from this crime. But again, if John did this, his primary motive may have been to rid himself of the burden of being a husband and father, so any financial considerations were secondary. The problem is that even though we have all these stories about John being a terrible husband who frequently cheated on his wife, it's never been made clear to me if Cheryl ever found out about any of these affairs or how she felt about the marriage in general. I have read unconfirmed rumors that Cheryl may have been thinking about asking John for a divorce, and since he hailed from a very religious family and his father was a fundamentalist Christian minister, John may have felt that murder was preferable to divorce. So obviously, the most bizarre detail which no one has ever been able to adequately explain is the fact that Tyler had hepatitis B at the time of his death. While it was never determined how Tyler contracted the virus, one of the most common ways to get hepatitis B is through sexual transmission. It sounds like when this discovery was first made, investigators believed it was their big aha moment, as they theorized that John had been sexually abusing his son, and when Cheryl found out about it and confronted him, he responded by committing murder. However, when John submitted a sample of his blood, and the test came back negative for hepatitis B, they had to rethink this whole theory. It could not be positively established if Tyler was sexually assaulted at the time his murder took place, but it has been reported that Tyler had previously displayed some odd, troubling behavior, such as defecating in his closet or under his bed, which can be interpreted as a sign that he was being sexually abused. The hepatitis B was the big elephant in the room that the prosecution tried to steer away from at John's trial, because if Tyler was being abused by an unknown third party, then this provides a potential motive for someone else to break into that house and murder Tyler and his family in such a brutal fashion. Now, that's not to say we can be certain that Tyler contracted the virus through sexual abuse. I know that investigators submitted a list to the Missouri Department of Health containing the names of 155 people Tyler could have had contact with, and there was no record of any of them ever having hepatitis B. But we are only talking about reported cases, as it's possible that one of those people could have contracted the virus and just never told anyone or got tested. I mean, it's possible that the hepatitis B has no relevance to the case, but here's a disturbing excerpt from the comment made by that aforementioned blog poster, former detective that knows. Quote, The little boy had hep B 
because John had taken him to one of his sex groups that involved several teachers in town. We learned that John was letting someone have sex with the boy, but we could never pin down who. End quote. Yikes. Once again, I have to reiterate that you need to apply a certain amount of skepticism to this guy's comment, as I've never read about these so-called sex groups involving teachers and pedophilia anywhere else, and the whole thing sounds awfully sensationalistic to me. But this detail about Tyler's hepatitis B really makes me wonder if there's a lot more to this story, and if it points to someone else besides John having a motive to commit this crime. I will say that regardless of John's guilt or innocence, it is disappointing that the authorities did not even attempt to pursue other leads after he was acquitted, and pretty much closed the investigation. I mean, obviously, they figured that since he was the killer and they couldn't charge him again, there was nothing else they could do, but unlike many other cases with not guilty verdicts, this one had some physical evidence pointing to another person besides the defendant. I'd be really curious to know if these unidentified fingerprints and hairs are still on file, and if any attempts have been made to match them to an alternate suspect. DNA technology is so much more advanced today than it was back in 1995, so if new testing was performed on these hairs, who knows where it might lead. Even though Double Jeopardy prevents John from ever being tried for this crime again, if this was a murder for hire, or there were other people involved, they could technically still be charged and brought to justice. In the years following his acquittal, John Feeney pretty much became a recluse, and while he did make one statement to the media that he was going to hire private investigators to find out who killed his family, I can understand the cynicism, since this was the 1990s, and everyone associated the phrase, find the real killers, with O.J. Simpson. Since John reportedly moved to South America, it seems like he's pretty much given up on his own quest to find the real killers. I honestly have to say that I really don't know where I stand on this one, because even though I think the jury made the right call by voting not guilty, I have a hard time believing that John was completely, 100% innocent in this whole thing. There's no evidence that John hired anyone to kill his family, though I certainly believe that's a possibility, and while I do think that John could have made the round trip from Osage Beach to Springfield and back to commit the crime himself, it bothers me that there's no definitive evidence placing him at the scene, or even in Springfield for that matter, and there are a few pieces of evidence pointing to an outside party. Whatever the case, there were definitely mistakes made in the investigation, and in hindsight, the state probably should have waited for stronger evidence before they charged John and took him to trial, because if he was guilty, they blew their one shot to put him away. I will say that with the amount of hatred and rage displayed during the murders of those poor, innocent children, it's easy to assume that the only person capable of that would be a father who never wanted those kids to begin with and wanted to rid himself of that burden, but without conclusive evidence, it's tough to say for sure. If John was the perpetrator all along, we may only learn the full truth if he elects to make a deathbed confession someday. However, if you happen to have any information that someone else besides John Feeney was responsible for the murders of Cheryl, Tyler, and John, please contact the appropriate authorities. But if you just have your own thoughts about what happened, feel free to leave me a comment or send me an email to robin.warder at icloud.com. That's robin.warder at icloud.com. Now the reminder that The Trail Went Cold is on Patreon, so please visit patreon.com slash thetrailwentcold to learn how you can support our podcast and become eligible for some pretty neat rewards. This past month, I released a special bonus episode about the unsolved disappearance of Mel Wiley, a police chief who vanished from Hinkley Township, Ohio in 1985. In addition, we've dropped an exclusive bonus episode from my spin-off podcast, The Path Went Chilly, in which myself, Jules, and our other co-host Ashley discuss the unsolved 2004 murder of Sarah Fox. And for our patrons in Tier 3, I've recorded another new audio commentary track, which can be played over a classic episode of Unsolved Mysteries. I'd also like to give a shout-out to our most recent listeners who have signed up with us on Patreon this week, and they are Carolyn W., Jessica H., and Katie. Thank you all so much for your support. Also, I just wanted to mention that this coming Saturday, April the 9th at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, we're going to be holding another Unsolved Mysteries Live Watch Marathon in which you can view classic segments from the TV show and chat with myself and your fellow listeners. If you would like to join us, we have the link to our screening room for this event in our show notes, and it's also pinned to the top of our social media pages. 
Once again, the Unsolved Mysteries Live Watch takes place this coming Saturday, April the 9th at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, and we hope to see you there. Also, in just three weeks, The Trail Went Cold will be appearing on Podcast Row at CrimeCon 2022, which is being held at Paris and Bally's in Las Vegas from April the 29th until May the 1st. If you would like to purchase tickets, we have our own personalized promo code to receive a 10% discount off a standard badge. So please visit CrimeCon.com and enter the promo code TRAIL. And provided that it's safe enough to travel there, I'm also planning to appear at CrimeCon UK, which is being held at the Leonardo Royal Hotel and Spa in London on June the 11th and 12th. If you would like to get a 10% discount on tickets to this event, please visit crimecon.co.uk and use the promo code COLD22. In addition, I wanted to provide another reminder that I hold live streaming sessions on a platform called Get Vocal. Every Thursday night from 7 until 8 p.m. Eastern Time, I host what is essentially an after show for each week's podcast episode, where I have an interactive discussion about the featured case from said episode and answer questions and address comments from listeners. I always include a link to these sessions in our show notes, so be sure to check there for more information or visit getvocal.com. That's G-E-T-V-O-K-L.com. I just wanted to give another shout out to my supporters at the Unsolved Mysteries message board at the Sitcoms Online Forum and the Unresolved Mysteries subreddit. I need to provide a big thanks to Miguel Foote, who edits and assembles this podcast together for me, and Vince Nitro, who composes the eerie music you hear on every episode. If you haven't already, you can like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, or leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. So have yourselves a great week, and join us next Wednesday for another brand new episode of The Trail Went Cold. Thank you.